Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Wild Apricots, Shiv Narayana is with us today on the Second in Command podcast, the chief behind the chief. Shiv is the Chief Marketing Officer at Wild Apricot out of Toronto, Canada, and while his title is CMO, he also functions as the company's second-in-command. Wild Apricot is an all-in-one membership management SaaS product for small associations, clubs, and nonprofits. They've got a huge membership base, and in fact, we are actually utilizing their software for our COO alliance. Um, on top of being the second-in-command for Wild Apricot, he's also a co-founder of How to SaaS which is a go-to podcast for growing cloud software companies, teaching them marketing, sales, business development, and customer service best practices and strategies. And as if he wasn't busy enough already, Shiv is also a strategic advisor for two companies in the tech space, Shoelace and Crossrope. Now, another thing that we're going to be diving into on the podcast today in the interview or, or talk with Shiv is... The founder of Wild Apricot, Dimitri Butrin, is the father of Vitalik, who was the, uh, the guy that created Ethereum, which is the second most popular digital currency in the world. So I'm looking forward to learning about that as well and how it tied into, I guess, a lot of the early stage employees at Wild Apricot um, holding some of that digital currency. So Shiv, welcome to the show. Great to be on, Cameron. Thanks for having me. No, it's really cool. So tell me how you got, um, got in with Wild Apricot originally. I actually know the, the founder of Wild Apricot. I'll let you give us some of the fun stories and, and won't give away all the, the cool stuff you've been involved with because there's a little bit of a fun family um, kind of uh, hyperlink there as well. But how did you get involved with Wild Apricot and, and what's the journey been like for you? Yeah, it's an interesting story. In about uh, 2014, I had recently left uh, my last startup. It's a company called Moberu, and I had slowly worked my way up the ladder. I started in an entry-level position there and worked my way up to the head of marketing and sales, but it was a fairly small company. And um, I decided that it was time for a change. And I was looking around Toronto to look at some of the top SaaS companies because I felt like that was the space for us for me to go into and so that's where I came upon Wild Apricot and I connected with Dimitri who was uh, our former CEO and he's been our CEO up until last year when we got acquired in October Um, and slowly from there came in took over the the team and um, I wanted to actually correct one of the things you mentioned which is we don't actually have a second in command but we I am the CMO of Wild Apricot and we have an interesting structure like you mentioned which is we have different different leaders in different areas of uh, the organization and so that's evolved in that time that I've been here. Um, and now we kind of operate in tandem to create kind of like a COO by committee uh, in some ways, which includes the head of product, myself, and the CFO. So it's a really interesting structure that we have going on. And that's evolved over time. Uh, and that's connected to the story of me joining Wild Apricot because when I joined, it was very hierarchical. Dimitri Buterin, our last CEO, was the CEO and all the final decisions went through him and we had the key managers in all areas of the business. And over time, one of the things that he did very well, and that's a key part of the reason that we got acquired in October of uh, 2017, is that he slowly started to relegate power and authority to all the leaders in the organization. And as he started doing that, he was no longer a linchpin or you know uh, bottleneck for the organization uh-huh. and so as those leaders have come up 
we are, we've been able to run the business without him. And in fact, in the year leading up to being acquired, he had slowly stepped away from the business because uh, as some of your listeners may know, he uh, is the father of Vitalik Buterin, who is the creator of Ethereum. And he has a lot of investments in that space. So Dimitri wanted to step away from Wild Apricot and go work on the, in the blockchain space. And, and so those leaders coming up in our organization really helped us transition Dimitri out of the business and find a way to operate to still grow the business to the next level. Yeah. So how was that? I mean, that's a really unique, um, well, I guess it's only unique because he's tied to Ethereum, but there's a lot of founders who get distracted with another business opportunity. I mean, clearly this is a fairly big one when his son is the founder of, you know, the second largest cryptocurrency in the world. Easy to get distracted in that. And, and it's certainly super profitable, although Wild Apricot is wildly successful. But what was it like when you started to feel the CEO pull away from the day-to-day and, and how did you um, kind of lead the team and manage uh, and how did, how did the team kind of get through that? Yes, it's a very, very, very good question. Um, it, it, it was a process that went on for many years. Uh, Dimitri, to his credit, didn't pull away until the right moment. Um, and because there were times if he had pulled away, let's say three years ago, I think the business would have gone, got into a lot of trouble. Um, and so the timing of when he stepped away or decided to start stepping away, it was actually ideal because we had leaders who could step in to fill a lot of the gaps that he was he was currently taking on. So that's things like, you know, working on the business, growth strategy, thinking outside of day-to-day operations. That, that's a lot of the, the work that goes into the CEO's lap. He didn't have to take care of that as much anymore because there were so many leaders in the organization. But that, that transformation took time. Um, it actually started in the winter of 2015 uh, where we had our annual meetings. Um, and there was this book, it's called Reinventing Organizations, by Frederick Leloux. I actually highly recommend it to your listeners, especially if they care about culture. Um, It's a framework on how to run an organization in a more decentralized way. And uh, you may be familiar with, you know, how Zappos has been implementing holacracy uh, and Tony Shea has been putting that into place for the last few years and they've had their ups and downs and that's been documented. Um, But what Tony Shea has shared as well is holacracy is a type of a organization that's mentioned in reinventing organizations, which is a teal paradigm. And the idea is that um, a good comparable to think about it is as, as cities double in size, they actually increase efficiency um, because for example, there's more people going to work, more people doing more activities, more jobs, productivity increases, more things are getting done. But in, when a company doubles in size, uh, efficiency actually decreases. Sure. And the reason for that is there's far more bottlenecks, right? So if, let's say, you know, a, a person X in the customer support team wants a computer. Well, that goes to their middle manager who goes to the chief customer officer who goes to the CEO or slash CFO. And then the decision comes down the ranks. And for a decision as simple as buying a computer, there's a lengthy decision-making cycle of, let's say, a week or two weeks. That's way too long. The decision is too small. So the idea of this paradigm is to put the power of decision-making into the hands of the people as much as possible to remove um, those bottlenecks and that, that cycle that goes up and takes up a lot of time to come back down. Um, and that's, that's what we've been implementing ever since then. And we've had a lot of false starts similar to the way Tony Shea has documented the way they made mistakes at Zappos. But over time where we've arrived at where we are at today is we have a lot of natural hierarchies and those natural hierarchies, lend to leaders to emerge. Uh, Those leaders have the authority to make big decisions. And as they step up more and more, the people that were previously 
filling those roles. It gives them space to now take the organization to the next level. And that moves up the chain all the way up to where Dimitri's seat is. And that was a seat that we no longer needed to fill because the people that were right below him in the former hierarchical structure have really stepped up so that we no longer need that. Wow. And, and did Dimitri start uh, Wild Apricot? Yes, he did. Okay. So, and then is he still own equity in the company or did you sell, I think you said? Yeah, no, he, he, he sold all of his equity. He did, eh? Okay. And then, so once that happened, what was that transition like and how did that culturally change and, and how did you adapt and get the team to adapt to the new culture, I guess, of being owned by other owners and who, who acquired you? Uh, so we were acquired by a company named Personify, um, and it was a really interesting process. So throughout the acquisition process, we had been transparent with all the employees and, and stakeholders involved, uh, and that process started in about December of 2016, uh, and then we were finally acquired in October of 2017. So in that time, uh, and I actually did a full podcast episode of this on my podcast, where I documented all the different stages of the journey, but in that time, we did multiple pitches, talked to multiple different parties who were interested in us, and one of the things that we were looking for, well, a couple of things, was one, somebody who aligned with our mission, understood our market, wanted to do the same things for our customer base, uh, and also they aligned with us on culture so that we didn't have this conflict of somebody coming in and saying, oh no, now you got to go back to the two-headed dinosaur of a CEO, CEO model, and you're reporting up and there's hierarchies back again. We wanted somebody who would respect that and personifies done a really great job. They, their CEO, Eric, completely understands our culture and um, that has helped the transition a bunch for us. And then the other part of it is actually over that transition, we've had to educate you know, all the different stakeholders involved. So we're educating our employees on how operations will change in a new world where now we are owned by another another company. And also the, there's other complicated factors like we're owned by a private equity firms, right? So now there's reporting structures that and dynamics that didn't exist in the past. So educating our employees on that, building communication and education for uh, Personify and their executive team to let them know how we operate, increasing their understanding of our strategy, how our culture operates, just so that nobody feels this a panic mode, knee-jerk reaction to come in and try to fix everything. And as you build that, build that understanding, that also breeds trust. When you're trying to make plans, strategies, forecasts, financials, all those kinds of things that are a pivotal part of operating a business. Yeah, there's, there's so many different components to it as well. What do you think are your, um, if you look at all those aspects of the company that you're involved in, what would your unique ability be? If you had maybe two or three things that you can you know, do every day and you can do for free, if except, you know, your kids have to eat, what, what would the, the core parts of the business be that you just love and get energized from and you're, you know, world class at? For me, it's, it's growth strategy. It's thinking about what is the next growth lever. And I would say that's the only one that I really try to focus on. And over time, as I've relegated my own authority and um, given more and more power to the people that used to report to me, if you will, um, that's been the area where I've focused the most is where is, where are the next two, three, you know, focus areas where if we put all of our energy into in terms of marketing, product, support, engineering, everything put together, that'll take our business, our growth, et cetera, to the next level. Um, that's what I've been focusing on for the last, I would say, year and a half to two years. And that was a big part of the acquisition because you have to explain here are the growth plans because at the end of the day, they're buying an asset. And if they're buying that asset, they're not just giving money to just let it sit still. They want to 
uh, want that asset to appreciate and potentially even flip that asset in the future, right? Especially if it's a private equity firm, they have investors who have money that, have, that they put into buying wild Africa. Well, they want to now realize that return at some point, right? So growth strategy is the place where I put all of my time. Yeah, Jim Collins used to call it the, uh, the flywheel effect, that if you had that one area of your business that you were completely pushing on, it would start to go faster and faster, almost with its own momentum. Yeah, absolutely. And we've definitely seen that. And, you know, you wrote that book, Double Double, which I've read. And there's another, another mentor of mine, his name is Jay Abraham. And he wrote this great book called Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got. So I'm from that school of thought, which is every business has a certain number of levers which if pulled correctly, you'd have to know the right configuration and each business is different. But when you pull the right levers, there's a lot of, lot of value to be captured from what's already there inside the business. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Wild Apricot processes about $300 million in payments annually through our platform because we have all these membership organizations that charge their members for regular membership dues or events or donations, et cetera. And currently we don't take a cut of that. So one of the projects um, which actually just launched this month is we launched our own payment processor in partnership with another payment provider. And so now we get a cut of every single transaction. That's a wow. project that, that took us, it took us about a year to put into play because it's not as simple as, well, we're going to launch a payment processor. Well, first you need to get alignment from all the key stakeholders. Then you need to actually go negotiate the contract and evaluate your different options. And then you got to put it into the product roadmap, deal with bugs. Then you got to go to do the go-to-market planning, prepare support, prepare billing. There's so many different areas and it's taken us a year to actually put that into place. But now we have a forecast based off of that strategy. That's really cool. Now, when you're, um, when you're sitting looking at all this stuff, how do you prioritize your time? You got a t- how many employees do you guys have inside Wild Epcot? We're at about 100 to 110 right now. It varies. Yeah. And how many were there when you joined about four years ago? Uh, about 65 to 70. Oh, so it's still a reasonably good side, but you still kind of doubled. So how do you prioritize your time now? Uh, most of my time goes into either those big growth levers and those big initiative projects that we're talking about. Um, that would be number one. Number two would be anybody who is dealing with uh, growth areas. I spend a lot of time supporting them um, with coaching, advice, um, education, whatever I can to help them achieve whatever they're trying to achieve. And that's actually an interesting topic we should touch on is how we actually manage forecasts and accountability with people like that. Um, And number three, I would say is a lot of uh, stakeholder management. It's a, I would say this is probably the most omitted and most pivotal part of any growth leaders role is managing expectations across all the stakeholders. So for us, it's the now, now it's even bigger than ever before. Before I used to just talk to Dimitri and our leadership team, but now it's our leadership team. Plus it's the new CEO of Personify. Plus we're talking about the private equity firm and there's just more nuances now than ever before. So there's a lot of meetings, one-on-ones, things like that. So that, those would be the three places where most of my time goes. Yeah. It's funny because I always say that the, the leader's number one job is to grow people. And um, yeah. interesting that you said it's around stakeholder management. So tell me, tell me what you mean by stakeholder management and how you focus on that then. Yeah. A, a good example I like to use to explain this to people is um, uh, recently, like I'm a big fan of hockey and in, in, in the hockey world, there's a, 
there are a lot of GMs who get fired every single year. And just like any sport, right? General managers are getting fired left, right, and center as the team doesn't perform. And recently, something interesting happened is the New York Rangers, they released a letter to their fans saying, hey, we're actually going to start sucking for a while. So we're going to trade some of our really good players. And, That's awesome. Yeah. And, and after that, they traded two of their best players. Um, and... So when they did that, nothing went wrong. Like no, the fan base understood and there was this sense of transparency, right? So yep. um, managing up is just as important as managing down. And that's something that has taken me a very long time to learn. And now I make an extra effort to actually do that. And I think that's something people miss is your job is to make sure everybody understands what the expectations are, what the growth rate is, why, let's say, if, even if you miss your target, why did you miss your target? What are the nuances that went into that missing that target? What are the changes you're going to make now to adjust and actually reach your targets? Like there's so many different conversations that need to happen that, and you can, you can avoid that, right? Because, because in the pursuit of chasing the target, you might ignore the communication piece, but the communication piece is part of your job description. Interesting. Yeah. You, you're really, you've really got your kind of insights on this stuff. So where, where did you gain your skills along the way? <laughs> it's a lot of, I would say a lot of mistakes made along the way. And I have no problem sharing this. There've been many times where, you know, I, I would say in 20, in 2016, middle of 2016, we were having a really tough time on our marketing side. And the thing about Wild Apricot is it's an exceptional business. Like our fundamentals, our strategy is so sound that the business continues to grow year over year. And it's grown significantly, like, you know, 20% plus every year. Um, and what's, what, what happened in 2016 is as we were figuring out this cultural dimension, there were some parts of our marketing and sales area that wasn't going well. And I've had moments where I thought, Hey, maybe I'm not going to be here in a couple of years, you know? And as you have moments like that, where you think, where you think you're on the verge of being fired or you make a big mistake or you make a mishire, or you have to let go of somebody who you thought was going to help you solve a major problem. Like all of those big decisions that, and, and moments that come, I, I think, to be honest, that's the only way to really learn things is making those mistakes. And then you recover and learn, okay, here's what I did wrong in this situation. Here's how I can implement it differently. Well, and you've, you've also talked about a couple of things. I mean, when we were offline, you talked about the fact that you're a part of a mastermind group where you were, you know, with the entrepreneurs organization. And, and I started a group called the COO Alliance, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. Um, but then you also mentioned, you know, even having read my first book, Double Double. So you're clearly into to self-learning. Did somebody tell you to read Double Double or did you just grab that on your own somehow? Just self-research. And actually, uh, I talk about this a lot with a lot of people. Is I see three major pillars of self-development. The first is self-study. And that is just, you know, finding any kind of book, YouTube video, TED Talk, audiobook, podcast, anything that you can get your hands on to really get good at that thing. Uh, the second pillar is peers, and that's where tools like the COO Alliance, EO, my EO group. I also hold a mastermind of my own for growth leaders at other software companies or uh, key marketers around Toronto. Uh, they really help because you go in and you share your experience and they bring their experience and you can learn from each other. Hey, I'm having problem with this, a problem with this employee. What, do you have any experience that can help me here? Or, hey, I'm having a problem with the sales process. Does anybody have an idea? And the last piece is mentors and coaches and really having, you know, a, a person who's ahead of where you are. For me, for a long time, that was Dimitri. And I know, Cameron, you, there are a lot of CEOs that you coach yourself. And th those people understand that you need somebody who's done it before to be able to coach you through what, whatever problem it is that you're facing. 
And then the last piece, it's not a, a pillar as much as I would say it's essential to getting the most out of these three pillars is a, a sandbox or a place where you can take everything you learn and test and experiment and understand your version of the truth. So what works for me at Wild Apricot with all the learnings that I have doesn't necessarily work for um, another software company, right? So I have, to, I have to learn as much as possible, come back, test it, and then reject anything that doesn't work, accept things that do work, change things, adjust things, and then also building as many reference points as possible. You mentioned in the intro that I'm a strategic advisor for a couple of companies. That's part of the reason that I do that. It adds a lot to my plate yeah. uh, for, in terms of the time value of money. It's a, the return is not as much as just the experience of having that many reference points. Like now as like it's been four years that I've been doing this, I have like 20, 30 companies that have actually gone really deep into their business, looked at their financials and actually helped them. And now like I, whenever I look at the SaaS company, I know, Oh, this is the problem that you're facing. Here's how I would address this. Maybe it's sales, maybe it's customer success, maybe it's demand generation. You just know based on the number of reference points you have. It's huge. Tell me, um, you've got of your 110 employees, how many are centralized out of your, your home office in Toronto and how many are decentralized working remote? We have uh, two offices. So Toronto is our head office and we have 30 people there and that's all the customer facing functions and our leadership team. And then Moscow is where our entire development and engineering team is. Oh, wow. So that's, then that's 80 people. And then you have no one who's working remote other than they're all in those two offices? Yeah, that's right. That's interesting. And then how do you work with the team in Moscow then? You're dealing with, um, I guess, not bad on the time zones. What is it, six time zone differences? Yeah, yeah. It's about six hours. Uh, I would say the biggest challenge with that is the language barrier. Um, and pass, and, and, but th- that's, it's not as big of a problem as you would think because people there, we actually have English classes there. People have, ma- have made a big effort to learn English and that's gotten a lot better over the years. And I would say there's a lot of key players and leaders there who don't have that problem at all. Um, but the second part I would say is more about the distance. Um, if there are a lot of customer facing activities here, that distance makes it hard to say, Hey, I just learned this thing from a customer or Hey, here's a, here's a problem that I'm facing right now. And so that disconnect is something that we're constantly working on. So one thing we've done is we've taken, you know, 10 people from here over to Moscow brought 20 people from there over here just to build those personal connections so that when you run into problems, you have ways of working together. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you said something that I thought was really cool. You said that the people over there, a lot of people over there have taken an initiative to learn English. And I was at the, one of our CO Alliance events a couple months ago, and we were talking about training employees and how the leader's job is to grow people. And somebody in the group said something really profound to me, and it was that, why are we so focused all the time on growing people? Why don't we hire people who grow themselves? Right. Like, Ooh, interesting, right? Like, like hiring people like yourself that are self-driven learners that are hungry to get better and are working on self-improvement in business and personal. Is that something you guys use in part of your interview process at all? Do you look for that as a core trait? hundred, hundred percent. Um, over the years I've, uh, so as I mentioned that time in 2016 where we had some, but somewhat a tough time and me, myself personally. And one of the big reasons was we made some mistakes in hiring. And, uh, when you coach players who aren't the exact right fit for certain roles, that becomes a far bigger problem. So hiring, to me, one of my biggest learnings has been that is where it all starts. Forget the the, the post-hiring process, like people talk about onboarding and, and retention and all that. It starts with hiring. And I've put a lot of effort into thinking about every time we've had a problem with an employee that we've had to part ways with, uh, a conflict and issues that 
seem unresolvable. There seems to be some issues that are in place. And I've actually made a list of about 15 to 16 things that actually I look for in candidates when I interview them. And it has actually nothing to do with, uh, with, with, with technical skills. It's Correct. entirely about attitude. So for example, number one, are they self-aware? Are they self-reflective? Do they constantly evaluate better ways of doing things? Number two, are they committed to deep work and mastery? Like you may have heard of Cal Newport's deep work yep. book. Yeah. Uh, number three, do they fully commit to doing everything they, that they want to achieve? Do they, do they put in the time? Do they hustle? Number four, do they actively invest into their own growth, like self-study, peer groups, mentors? Number five, are they a stoic? I think this is one of the most important ones of them all. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because, because I think one of the biggest problems you have during conflicts is people feel like victims, like a victim mentality. And that's, I try to screen that during the interview process. Anytime somebody comes to me and says, oh, this didn't work out at my last job because my manager was the problem. Well, my number one question back to that is, I hear you and I, your manager probably was an asshole, but um, what could you have done differently? Can you list something for me that you could have done differently? And if that person can give me a, a tangible answer, that shows me that that person doesn't think they had any power in the situation, which is, which is nonsense because we always have somewhat of a choice in every situation. So I want people who can see every obstacle as an opportunity. Um, number six, do they have true grit? Uh, and that's about being resourceful. Uh, you, and there's a book about this as well, and a TED talk by Angela Duckworth, um, which is that uh, to actually get something done, there's always going to be that dip that says, Godin talks about you can start something and then you're going to hit a roadblock and yep. people who finish things are the ones that are truly gritty. Um, number seven, do they value the team over the individual? Clearly important. Number eight, do they have an A plus attitude? Always positive. Even when things are tough. Number nine, do they have a high EQ? Do they have a high dose of empathy? I think this is very important because when things get tough, it's very easy to blame and it's very difficult to put yourself in the other person's shoes. So empathy is critically important. Um, number 10, do they take on extreme ownership for everything they do? And there's a book by Jocko uh, Wilnick on this topic, who also has a great podcast. And it's about taking self-accountability for anything that happens. Um, and, and there's a bunch more. I can go on forever. But just there's, these are the types of characteristics. Like I think A players are, have more soft skills than B players. It's not about technical. I can teach technical. Well, I you're cannot, right. I completely agree. And sorry for cutting you off. You, I've been sitting waiting to jump in, but this, you just nailed it right there that the A players have more soft skills than the technical skills of Bs. So I don't know if you've read any of Simon Sinek's um, material, Start yep. With Why, but Simon and I have been friends since 2003. He actually flew out to Vancouver to meet me because he read about me in Fortune magazine. So we've known each other for a long time before other of us got known. He's extraordinarily well known now, clearly. Um, but, he, but he talks about the golden circles of the why, how, and what, and the why being that kind of core that companies need to exist. And I took that model and overlaid it over top of training and said that we really need to make sure that all of our employees are trained on why we exist, you know, our core values, our core purpose, the history, the lore, our vivid vision of the company, like the real why we exist and why we get up in the morning. The second layer, the second circle is the how we do what we do. And that's all the soft skills leadership of situational leadership, time management, coaching, delegation, conflict management, problem solving, you know, all of the, the core um, situ the core leadership skills. And I think we miss on that. And then the outer ring is the what we do. And I think too many companies are focused on training people on the what without training and certifying everyone on the why and the how. And I think it sounds like 
one of your core tenets that you've focused on as a leader and certainly at Wealth Opera Cop, but mostly you, is the area of, of the, the how you do what you do. Um, 100%, 100%. Yeah. And that's where the cultural piece also comes in. You know, Steve Jobs has this great quote where he talks about, you know, if you want to hire great people and have them stay working with you, you have to let them make a lot of decisions and you have to be run by ideas, not by hierarchy. So when you think about why we do what we do, we have a very clear mission. Um, and half of it is about our customers and how we're going to serve them better to help them run better nonprofits and organizations to make an impact on the world. But the other half is actually about our employees and it's about giving them a place where they can reach self-actualization, be the best version of themselves. And that's a really powerful why that unites our company. It brings everybody into work, pumped up to do what they do. Right. And that to me is more important than, you know, more of a flowery why statement. I agree. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So I talk about my vivid vision and I talk about it in the book, Double Double. Do you guys have a vivid vision or what I used to call the painted picture in, uh, in Wild Apricot yet? We, we have something that we call the company book and it, it outlines every aspect of our business, including culture, strategy, where we're going, okay, implementation okay. level work, uh, work. It's everything. Now, do you share that with your customers and your suppliers as well? We share parts of it that are relevant to them, uh, absolutely, um, but not everything because obviously there's some internal stuff in there. Just, just for fun, and especially now that your CEO has moved on, take a look. My, my newest book that just came out is called Vivid Vision. Um, take a look at it because I really took the concept of chapter one from Double Double and really expanded on it so that companies can truly understand how to replace mission statements with this four or five page written document describing their company in the future. It might be really cool for you guys in the next phase of your growth. Um, yeah. And another thing I want to ask about is meetings. One of my books called Meetings Suck. Um, people are buying it for every employee at every company because they, they realize that meetings actually don't suck. We suck at running them. My right. guess is that you guys are actually pretty good at running meetings. So tell me what you've learned over the years and how you're running successful and, and high-impact meetings. Um, well, first, on the Vivid Vision book, that's actually on my list to buy and read. So I, I've been seeing it all over the place. So I will read it for sure. Um, on the meeting suck thing, I've also read that and we're strong believers in not wasting anybody's time with meetings. Um, and that's part of the decentralization, right? Uh, one of the biggest ways people deal with solving problems in a super hierarchical organization is let's everybody get into a meeting, right? That's the, that's the solution to every problem that people face. And so I think one of the ways we've tackle this is by something that we call the advice process. Um, What's that? So when you have decentralized authority, like people always ask me, they go, well, if anybody can make any decision, how do you guys make sure the right decisions are being made? Yeah. And, and there's this, there's this idea. We, we actually got it. We started this whole process because we saw two videos from Spotify on how they run their engineering culture. And I highly recommend your, your audience looks that up as well. They talk about how they run a massive engineering team to produce this world-class product. And they talk about this concept of um, agile at scale requires trust at scale. So if, if you're going to build something massive, you need to have a lot of trust uh, of, of your teams, right? And so when you give trust to people, then part of that is accountability. When you give people total trust, it's, then they're accountable based on the freedom that they have. And the other part is that you almost have to trust them to loop you in at the right time. So, I mean, a lot of second in commands come on your podcast. They have implicit trust from the CEO that the CEO will be looped in when there's an operational decision that requires the CEO. Well, why can't that concept 
be scaled to all other people. And so that's where the advice process comes in is you have people on the team who let's say, let's say I have to make a decision on we're running a webinar next week um, and it has a speaker and I got to figure out what the topic is. So if, if I have to have a meeting and, and talk to our head of content, Donald, and say, uh, hey, Donald, what's, what's the webinar topic? Let's talk about it together. Well, then I'm leading the initiative. Instead, if Donald thinks about the topic, talks to the speaker who's coming on the webinar, puts the presentation options together, and then he loops me in via advice because I have a few things. I have expertise in the area. I have context. I have an understanding of our strategy. So based on all those things, he goes, Shiv is an advisor I need to talk to before I can finalize this decision. And I trust Donald to, to loop me in at that right time. And then that might just be a five second or five minute sync up versus it being a one hour meeting where we're spending talking about webinars going in circles. So that advice process really shortcuts the number of meetings we actually end up having. And they Smart. end up being like smaller meetings. Smart. So, so you're just talking about who the subject matter experts are and letting the stakeholders to know what's being involved and how the decision's being made, whether it's being made by a group or consensus or one person, but at least people, if they're being involved in the process, are being told in advance. Exactly. And the idea is that if, if you do that, inevitably, all the right stakeholders will be looped in anyways. There's, one of the biggest problems in meetings is there's people in the room that have no, no reason to be in the room, right? What, whereas when you give that power to the person who is actually making the decision and say, okay, loop in only the people that you think are important here. And let's say there is a critical omission. Let's say he forgot to leave, include me. And it gets to a point where it's like a mistake was made. Then we can have a conversation and say, hey, can you please loop me in next time? Because most of the time, most decisions don't burn down the business. It's, it's usually seems far worse than it actually is. So also giving people the freedom to make mistakes, like mistakes need to be part of the culture, accepting them, embracing them, because that's how people in the organization grow. And as people grow, that's how you can build a company that can scale to a hundred million or billion dollars, right? Because there's no way me or Evgeny who leads our product or Sean, who's our CFO. There's no way just the three of us can be the leaders of the business. If we grow to hundred million, it's impossible. We need multiple leaders. Yeah, we, we do need multiple leaders. It's interesting how you guys have really worked through the whole decentral organization. I want to ask a couple of quick questions about that before we wrap, but you mm. touched on something that you kind of breezed over really quickly and it was, I'll paraphrase, but it's like, we shouldn't really be inviting people to meetings unless we give them a voice. And, um, I don't remember what it was exactly, as you said, but that was the way I interpreted it. So how do you decide as a company who to invite to meetings? And then how do you not invite people who shouldn't be there because their time is better spent working on other projects? How do you not invite them without hurting their feelings? This is a huge lesson for people to, to, to think about. Yeah, I think, you know, we've, we've gone through that evolution. And that's a word we love around Wild Apricot is everything is an evolution. There's no like drastic change. We're evolving just like anything else. And um, there has, there was a period when people had some feelings hurt. Right. And then over time, like for including myself, there was a time when I was involved in every decision related to marketing and growth all the time. Hmm. And as you know, you start leveling up and the people on your team start leveling up. Well, they don't necessarily need you in the room anymore. And so there were times when my feelings were hurt. Like, why am I, do I need to be in there? Am I making a mistake by not being in there? And there were times when maybe they made a mistake that could have been avoided if I was in the room. But as that evolution has gone on, you, like you can see the value of it. You can see how people have stepped up, how much more freedom I now have to be able to think about other areas of the business, those big 
top three to- topics that we were talking about, which I didn't have before because I was so in the operations of the business. Um, and one topic I do want to touch on is accountability to that because when you have so much freedom, it can go it can go in the wrong way, in, in the wrong direction. Yeah. And so that's why you need accountability. Accountability is a core part of those fundamentals. So I'll give an example. Um, let's say we're talking about, about webinars again. Um, at the end of every year, so in Q4, the, the way forecasting usually works in other companies, at least as I understand it, is um, there, there's a few select group of people that do the forecasting. Well, in our company, instead of me creating the forecast of how many new accounts we're going to land, how much growth we're going to have, it's actually a question that I put back to every person on the team. Um, so I'll go to Donald who heads up our webinars and say, how many webinar registrants are we going to get this year? How many of those webinar registrants will go to trial? How many of those people will get to paid status? I'll ask the same thing to our paid media manager. How much are we going to spend on Google ads, Facebook ads, Bing ads, Captera? How many trials will that bring? How many upgrades will that bring us? And they're doing backwards forecasting on all that spend and then giving me a number. And then with all the different functions combined, like SEO content, uh, paid, other growth, growth ideas like that payment processor concept that I mentioned, we combine that into one single forecast and that's what's presented. So now everybody on that team is accountable to the number that they helped create, right? And so now I have a mechanism to hold people accountable as well to say, these aren't my numbers. These are your numbers. And we've gone back and forth into crafting this together, but we had a awesome. core agreement. You had a which agreement? We just had, we had an agreement on what those numbers would be, right? So now that, that gives us a foundation for having a conversation instead of me trying to manage with control, it's managing with trust and accountability. I can't imagine you guys have a lot of turnover. We don't. (laughs) People don't leave all that for cut. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're in a very, very, um, you're in a very competitive job market in the IT space. And I interviewed for our very first podcast, we interviewed Harley Finkelstein from Shopify, who's the second in command there. How are you competing against a brand like Shopify in the Toronto marketplace? I think there's a few things. One is definitely our culture. Um, It's a huge differentiator and Shopify is a great company and a lot of people that worked in Harley's a really great guy and really smart. Um, so Shopify is definitely one of those people, uh, one, one of those companies. Um, but for us, we are separated by culture. I can't tell you the number of times I meet candidates who are interviewing with us who say that their last company that they were working for, it was completely unclear as to what the strategy was. Their role was completely restricted. They were told to sit in a corner and write a blog post and that's it. They had no idea what the numbers were. The financials were not transparent. It's just a different environment. People love coming to work with us. And if you think about a common metric for product, which is NPS, Net Promoter Score, well, that tells you how likely some of your customers to refer your product to somebody else. Well, companies are like that because employee refer other employees refer other employees, right? And and retention is of an employee is just as important as hiring somebody. And so with Wild Africa, we barely have had any turnover. I can probably count it in. And within 10 fingers, the number of people that have left us in the last few years. That's really cool. Yeah, I had a client that I coached for years out of New York City, and they only ever had one employee in nine years quit um, or poached, be poached by another company. And they had a huge wine rack in their New York office that was filled with Bordeaux and Burgundy wines, really expensive ones. And anytime an employee got poached uh, or attempted to be poached by a, a search firm or another company, all they had to do was say, yeah, I got poached by this company. I told them that, to, you know, not, not leaving. 
they could walk over the <laughs> wine rack and grab a bottle of wine. And it was like, it was like a, um, it was like a badge of honor. It's like, Hey, I almost got poached twice this week. I get two bottles of Bordeaux and they used to make a joke out of it. It was almost like no one was ever quitting. It was so comical that, you know, it's almost like they were running job ads for themselves just to get recruited so they could fill up their own wine cellar. So that's, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah. If I can, if I could just add one, one thought to that is just, yeah, yeah. um, with employee retention, it, the reason it's a really big topic is, uh, companies lose a lot of productivity when employees leave because the cycle to hire somebody else, potentially that person may not work out as well as the person that you had in the past. It leads to a, a macro impact. If you look at it across the board of product support, marketing, sales, etc. And so by keeping people, building a really healthy business is, is far more likely than if you have a lot of turnover. Right. And so that's, that's another differentiator for us is amongst all the SaaS companies in Toronto, I would say we're in the top five, just based off of that is our, our financial health is, is way higher than a lot of those companies simply because we have employees who have institutional memory, who know the ins and outs of our market, who know what our customers want. And that, that leads to even more health in the long term as they stay longer with us. Right. Yeah. That's huge stuff. Like you guys are an extraordinarily well, well run company though. So why are we not hearing more about your company as the best place to work in Canada yet? And one of the best run companies in Canada, are you not, you know, entering the awards or am I just daft and not seeing you appear? We don't enter a single award. Not yet. Uh, this is actually, we started the show off with Dimitri. So it's an important point to mention is the way Dimitri runs his life is always inward, always focused on internal mastery and, when you talk about CEOs, companies are often manifestations of their, their CEO. And that's how Wild Apricot has been built. Um, that's one of my personal missions as well as to get the word out for Wild Apricot. To, by doing things like this, we're in super hiring mode. And I want people around Toronto and everywhere else to know how great of a place we are to work and how great of a business we are as a SaaS company. And the other thing is we haven't raised any money because Dimitri sold his last company to Microsoft and it was completely bootstrapped by him. So when you raise money, then you get the hoopla. If you go to Y Combinator, you know, then you get the press coverage and all that. So we haven't had any of that. We've just been chugging along, running a great business. All right. Well, I want you guys to scream and shout from the rooftops a little bit because you are doing a fantastic job. Really, really impressed. I appreciate that. You know, hadn't known of you. And I know a lot of the best companies to work for, certainly in Canada and and as well as in the US, I coach a lot of them and have coached, you know, award winners in in about six countries now. I'm just really impressed that you guys are as well run as as you're coming off right now. And I can scratch through that. My spider senses would be tingling if you weren't. But I really (laughs) I'd I'd really encourage you to to get your company entered into every contest you can because that third party, party credibility, that social proof is huge. And, um, you know, sharing your vivid vision and the press of what you're getting and garnering will be huge for you guys as you continue to grow. So I want to shift gears and, and just ask one more question. I'm not trying to cut your knees out from underneath you, but, you know, I think you said earlier in the show that, that you learned from your failures. So let's let everybody learn from one of your failures. Like what was one big failure that you had along the way and the big lesson that, that came out of it? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good question. I would say... I would say so. I grew up. Uh, I grew up in India, and I lived there for. Uh, I lived there for ten years of my life, and it was a very competitive academic system. Um, and you know, in the summers, I was studying all day. You know, I would, I would play outside for about a, cu- a couple of hours, but the rest of the day was studying. And the 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 narrative there in the school system is always the higher the marks that you get in school. 
the more of a genius that you are. And so over time, one of the things that I have had programmed into myself is that genius is about being smart. And I've really had to flip that at Wild Apricot over the last four years is initially I did think that is that, oh, if I could just be an inch smarter, learn, learn one more thing, implement one more growth strategy, well, that'll take the company to the next level. And um, the flip that has come for me from the steel transformation, from the decentralization, from uh, finding ways to lead people without power as much as possible is that genius isn't about being smart, it's about leading people and it's about working with people. Um, and the sooner people realize that, it's, I think that's the fastest way to make a big impact. If you want to do like a, you know, a small business, a solopreneur, you know, e-commerce store, yeah, you can do that alone. But if you want to make a really big impact, run a $100 million company, Plus, it's all about the people. Right. Interesting. It really is all about the people. And I, when you get that right, you know, Jim Collins talks about getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and everybody in the right seats. But it's, um, it, it truly is an impact when you get the people component down and everything else. And culture. You know, I always say that you have to build a culture that's a little more than a business and a little bit less than a religion. It has to be in that zone of a cult. Um, that's right. Yeah, you're right. All right. So I'll, I'll give you a balance instead of, instead of nailing this with, you know, tell us something you screwed up on. Give us, give <laughs> us something that you are, you know, if you could stand on the rooftops and brag and say, Hey, look at, look at us at Wild Apricot or look at what I'm bringing to the table is Shiv. What would you be saying is kind of one of your unique ability skills that you could maybe impart on, on our listener? I would, I wouldn't focus on myself, but more just overall on Wild Apricot. I would say just all these things combined, which I, what I was saying earlier is just, um, the amount of effort that we focus inward has really produced an amazing business. And that's kind of what I would encourage other people to do as well is uh, dialoguing with customers as much as possible, increasing the amount of empathy you have for your customers, falling in love with them, really understanding what it is that they want and need from your business, doing the same for your employees, really understanding what it is they, they want and need. A framework that we use internally is called nonviolent communication. And the idea is that nobody in the world is evil. Everybody has needs that they're trying to meet. And as long as you can help them meet those needs, everybody can get along and be fine. And things like big wars have been solved with that framework. So it's something that we really believe in. And uh, I think that is what shows in, in our business results that the business results are an outcome of, of the amount of work that we put into all the different areas that involve people. You got it, man. Shiv, you guys are doing a hell of a job. Um, where's your office in Toronto roughly? It's right by Union Station. Oh, you're right downtown. So you guys are super yeah. close to another one of my clients. Um, do, you go, do you know a company out of there called, um, oh shoot, now I'm going to blank on their name. <laughs> um, what, wow. what do they do? Uh, digital marketing. Um, hmm. oh, oh, you're talking about Powered by Search. Powered by Search, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, know, I know Dave Basu very well. Yeah, he's a good yeah. guy. He's a, they're the great guy. So you guys are, are you close? Are you on Young at um, Union, like Young and King? Or? You no, know, we're, we're at front of university, but D Dave and I have had okay. a lot of conversation. He's actually been on my podcast. I'm going to be publishing that episode soon. He does a great job. And then also Matthew Bertulli. I don't know if you know Matthew's up, I guess, a couple floors above Dev as well. Runs a spectacular company in Toronto as well. Uh, I don't know him, but uh, yeah. yeah, would love an introduction. Or great person. We got to get, get you guys out for like a mastermind dinner. And then do you ever go out to a company or a restaurant in Toronto called Baru? Yeah, great place. <laughs> yeah, that's the guy who uh, my last day at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was his first day. He's one of the co-owners there, Michelle Falcon, but he's kind of a global uh, no expert idea. on customer engagement. That's awesome. Yeah, That's, that's a good, good place to eat too. 
It's great food. Yeah. All right, Shiv, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. If I can help you in any way with any of your business, let me know. But I really appreciate all the wisdom and the time that you shared with everybody. And we'll send you the link for the show when it comes out. Hey, my pleasure, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this kind of interview. It's hard to talk about culture usually with people. And I, I, I know that you get it and you always emphasize in the CEO Alliance and all that kind of stuff. So I appreciate you doing this. No, you're welcome. No, the big thing about culture I'm trying to get people to understand is it's not about the free perks and the giveaways. It's about alignment with vision and people and culture and communications and all the stuff the media is reporting. They're kind of missing the point. I'm glad you got it. That's right. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Thanks for being on the show. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.